I have Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat stuck in my head. You know, that's like one of the worst shows ever written. I don't think it. No. Cats exists. Cats is bad, but Rum Tum Tugger is in Cats. Hi, Heather. It's true. Hello. Hell is a Pastor, a podcast about life and set-apart ministry. Each week we sit down to discuss our experiences and challenges in small-town parish ministry and in PhD work and ask others to join us as we try to figure out what the hell it is that pastors do and how to do it as best we can. Listeners, this week on the podcast, we are continuing our conversation about rural ministry with my favorite rural ministry expert, Heather, who is joining us from the Bonnie Land of Scotland. So Heather, in as much information as you want to introduce yourself, uh, tell us what you're doing and how things are going and, and what qualifies you to be our rural studies person for this episode. So many questions, so little time. Okay, um, so the background, uh, obviously, I'm Heather. Um, I was born and grew up in Canada and then moved to Scotland 11 years ago, 11 and a half years ago. Oh, wow. Um, and uh, since then, I've lived in rural places. I've lived in city places. Um, I did a theology degree, um, started with a theology degree, in the Highlands, uh, finished that and then went to the University of Edinburgh uh, where I did a biblical studies uh, master's degree. Where we uh, met. Exactly, where we met. And uh, and then when I finished off the biblical studies master's, I uh, moved into doing a PhD in practical theology, rural church and mission, um, where I set off to... Uh, uh, set off to a, a rural area uh, in the borders of Scotland to work with two parish churches doing field work. And so I spent 27 months um, living alongside, working alongside, listening to people in rural settings and um, just trying to get to grips with whether or not there was a sustainable future for mission and ministry in rural Scotland, essentially, within the parish church. So that's the Church of Scotland, um, which is Presbyterian. And um, yeah, uh, lots of lots of wrestling, uh, lots of uh, reading, lots of experiences that are part of that. Um, increasingly, it became an autoethnographic PhD. Uh, so yes, I did quite a lot of field work but rather than approaching it as a sort of sociological experiment as soon as you move into a rural area you become part of the community in some form or other and so i by my very presence i was changing things and um, so it's become quite autoethnographic uh, but after 27 months of field work i left the area in order to start the process of trying to write up 
and just trying to process um, trying to process the experience, trying to process the, the challenges facing these churches and trying to wade through 27 months of my life and try to figure out how to distill that into, um, into a question that could actually be answered in a 100,000 word PhD thesis. Uh, so the final question that I came down to is, um, and I'm probably going to muddle up all the words now, that's just the way these things work. Um, but essentially, is there a sustainable future for mission and ministry in rural churches? And uh, about crafting a, a rural paradigm using you know, qualitative research methods, using all of those kinds of things within the field of practical theology and reflexivity, um, to be able to actually engage with some of those questions. I'm now in the final, <laughs> the final months. I've got um, yet another extension, thanks to COVID. Woohoo! Yeah. Um, so I have an extension, thanks to COVID. Um, but the the ongoing battle with um, trying to to find a balance between finishing my PhD and uh, and managing my own mental health. Uh, in the middle of a pandemic as well. So it's been, it's been a lot, it's been a lot. Um, but it means that I've been living and breathing rural church and rural ministry for the best part of the last four and a half years. Um, but that's, you know, where I've been in terms of study, that's not including any of my other involvement um, with the International Rural Churches Association, the Churches Rural Group for Churches Together in England. Ironically, I'm the Scottish representative <laughs> for the yeah. Churches Together in England group. Um, the Rural Working Group for the Church of Scotland. And um, yeah, just about any, any other thing. So rural fresh expressions, rural ministries, uh, a lot of those kinds of involvements within the UK and, uh, and broader nice there we go there's there's my try to sum up that question that was good that was good i have um two questions and we can pick whichever one you want to go with first because i think they're going to take us in different directions and you can take one or leave it whichever um <laughs> right, the okay. first I'm, i'll make notes yeah do it the first is that you're a pk right you're a pastor's kid mm -hmm. and so i want to hear how that um how that background and your background in churches influenced how you came at this project mm -hmm. and then two i want to hear um about uh like mega churches or larger churches in the uk because i don't think that y'all do mega church the way we do mega church but i know that you have some larger churches so i want to hear how that plays into it um and then the third question that i want us to answer at some point is whether you actually think there's a future for rural ministry in scotland so i'm just gonna we're gonna spoil your phd thesis on this podcast uh so whichever one of those you want to jump off with first uh and we'll let you talk and ethan knows that he can jump in with questions whenever he is ready for it so go heather go okay uh hang on while i finish making this bit of a note okay right um well i'll tackle the first one first then um being a pk how does that actually change my perspective um yeah, I probably should should provide a bit more background on that. Um, 
which actually kind of ties in with where you finished up your podcast, the last podcast. Um, so part of what you kind of flagged up towards the end was um, that talking about being a rural pastor is that it's, it's a calling, it's a vocation, it's not a job, it's not a career um, in terms of, you know, this is something that you're going to do because that's how you earn your pension. Um, like that's just, you're never going to make money as a rural pastor. <laughs> as a rural pastor, you are, you're going because you feel called to that. Um, but also that there is a huge problem in terms of training for rural ministry. And a lot of people are completely unprepared for that. Um, so I'm a PK whose father was put into a rural setting straight out of seminary, newly married with no understanding and very little support. Um, <sighs> yeah, so he had come from, uh, he'd come from a more rural area on the outskirts of Edmonton uh, in Alberta. He'd grown up in that kind of environment, um, but he went off to, went off to seminary uh, after doing his university, went off to seminary and then was dumped in a rural parish at you know, 26 years old, newly married and a baby on the way. And um, yeah, didn't go so well. So partly because of, partly because of knowing what my father's background is, um, you know, we started off in a really small, uh, rural place that had some huge issues within the church leadership and my dad had very little support and um, he had a nervous breakdown he was pulled out of that place and put into another place which was an even smaller rural place where he ended up having a second nervous breakdown unsurprisingly and um, he ended up leaving ministry and so we went. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, he left the ministry. So we went wandering for, you know, a period of time where dad did a whole bunch of different jobs. Our family was just, we were the nomads. We just kind of went where we happened to go. And then we ended up in a city and my dad started working uh, after, after a fair amount of healing on his own part and um, started working with an urban mission, working with guys with drug and alcohol addictions. And, uh, so my experience of ministry and you know being being a ministry kid uh, has meant that there are things that I that I watch for and there are things that trigger me in terms of things like toxicity within church politics um, in some of the the danger and the lack of support that there is for for ministers particularly for young ministers and and, uh, and young pastors and the, the need for discipleship and mentoring and um, building relationships that are life-giving, um, but that also involve quite a lot of networking and how important that becomes in terms of things like accountability, um, developing teams that can actually work together as teams and the toxicity of minister dependency or clergy dependency in a lot of places, particularly in rural places, where there's an expectation that the minister will do everything. And then there's a conflict in expectations. Sometimes you have a minister who has been trained to be the one man band or the one woman band, 
um, who then goes into a place where they've survived very well without a clergy for this long, thank you very much, and they are a team that already knows what they're doing, so you fit in with them. And, you know, what kinds of conflict that can bring about. And partly because of my background and my experience, you know, I'd been in tiny little rural places and I'd been in some mega churches in Canada. And, um, you know, when I lived in, lived in cities and I lived in Calgary for a while and I was at the biggest church in Calgary, like 8,000 people, you know. What? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I have a, I have a, a small church, you know, like tiny 50 people in the congregation church. Uh, in Canada, I have the 8,000 people in a congregation church in Canada. And then I came to, I came to Scotland and partway through my PhD and all the rest of it. Then there are things that I've learned about, you know, being a church of 15, like one five. And what does that bring to the table as well? And um, so, so yeah, in terms of changing my perspective, one of the things that I've had to be really careful of, um, and I've had to be quite explicit about in my thesis is to say my background and my experience affects the way that I see and the way that I interpret situations. Um, now, thankfully, I am operating within an autoethnographic structure, so I can. I can sit there and I can say, this is my perspective. This has been my experience. This is the way that I'm processing my experience. Um, one of the things that's been really great is that it's actually allowed me to see things that another outsider might not. Um, and moving into, when I first moved to Scotland, I moved to a small town. Uh, I moved to a small town and I ended up in a very, very small church, you know, like 30 people. And um, I got adopted by them. You know, they became my family. They became my church family. I had no ties to the area. I had no ties elsewhere in the country, um, which meant I had no baggage that they knew about anyway. Um, so they couldn't sit there and go, oh, we know you, you're Doris's granddaughter, which means that we know your grandfather and your grandmother and your great grandfather and your great grandmother, which means that that's the type of person you are. They didn't know that I was just me and I could just be me. Um, so that was great on, you know, on that side of things. But as I've lived in Scotland longer, you know, as I move around, as I'm in different places, I'm developing those relationships. So now within, certainly within the Christian context in, in Scotland, it's a very small world. Um, there are people that I have encountered through the years that go, oh, you know, my second cousin once removed because you lived in that place. I'm like, yes, I, I lived in that place. You're quite right. I do know mm -hmm. that person because we both worked for the same person or, you know, whatever else. Scotland is a very small country when it comes to that. And the Christian community is even smaller. To be fair, that happens a lot in Methodism where like, it's, oh, you went to this church. Well, do you know so-and-so who served at this church at this time who like, blah, blah. so yeah, that happens a lot. It happens a lot here too. Um, I don't want to completely derail the the biography because i think this is really fun um but i just i want to highlight a couple of the the really important things that um that you said over the course of this which sure. is is to raise up the fact that um 
people in rural ministry, you don't get the training for rural ministry. And then a lot of times people think the solution is just, oh, it's this one church that is a problem. Let's move you to another church. But we're not, we're not dealing with the root problem at all with it. Um, and I, I like my heart breaks for your dad. Cause I am sure that like, that was just bananas. Um, and, and I like after a year of being in just one place, the DS thought the fix was let's bring in another church for me. And like, that's not, that wasn't what anybody needed. Um, that's not the entirety of the story, but, but yeah. So I think that's, that's important to raise up as a part of the story. Um, I also just want to say that like, you are the, your PhD is so, um, so well suited to your personality because you have like the best nose for churches out of anybody that I know. Um, like when I was, when I was in Scotland, I ended up going to this completely soulless, joyless church, uh, because two of, two of our mutual friends went there. Um, and we lived in the same building and after Easter service at that church, which was just awful, I was talking to Heather and I was like, I like, this was terrible. This was my Easter. There's absolutely no joy. I hate everything. And Heather's like, you could come to this evening Easter service over in this church. And it was exactly what I needed. Cause like Heather just has that analytical mind of these things. So, um, yeah, I think, I think you just, you pick up on these things, which I think is great. Um, and I think that the last thing that you highlight is, um, there's both that pro and that con of being an outsider coming into, into these smaller churches. Uh, the like pro of it is, well, you don't know all my stuff. So I get to, I get to invent myself here, but there's also, I don't know if you've experienced this because uh, listeners, Heather is an extrovert and is good at that. Um, but there's also, there's a suspicion of outsiders. And unless you're willing to give a whole lot to that community um, and be like, here's, here's a bunch of my personality. Here's a bunch of who I am so that you can make a decision. Unless you're willing to like jump in and risk all of that, you end up continuing to be the outsider as people slowly get to know you and you slowly get to know them. And it's just a, it's a longer term process. Yeah, and it absolutely is a long-term process. Um, I think one of the one of the things that's been really interesting over the years um, is that I have I've moved around a heck of a lot, and um, partly because of where I started and my family moving around quite a lot, but also just within even within Scotland I've moved around, and part of um, part of moving around has also meant moving denominations. I've been in a whole bunch of different churches and a whole bunch of different denominations. And um, so I tend to I tend to not operate from the mindset that says, well, this is the denomination, therefore I'm going to go to whichever church happens to be that denomination. Instead, when I move to a place, I say, where is a church that feels right? Um, you know, in some cases, it may just be where is the church that's the closest to me? So which church happens to be the local one? Um, in some cases, it's a case of doing the, this is not feeding my soul and I need to go to a place where people actually believe the Bible, one, um, actually pray and care for each other and, uh, and you know, that the spirit of God is there and, and is, there's something alive and there's something vibrant about that. It's funny how like those are three very basic things for a church, but it's hard to find a church that does them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you'll get two out of three. Sometimes you'll get all three. Sometimes you'll get none. <sighs> uh, <laughs> but, uh, but this is, you know, this is part of the challenge of it. 
But certainly when I when I arrived, when I started doing my fieldwork um, for for my PhD, there was very much a case of the outsider. Um, you know, one of the things about uh, just about my experience of doing my PhD was that it was very much like going into rural ministry. Um, you know, there was a almost an expectation within the presbytery that you know, here she's come to talk and you know she's come to fix the the future of rural churches. Um, so these are the two churches that she's going to work with, and she's going to be the silver bullet that's somehow going to sort them out and and switch things around. I'm like, <laughs> no, nope. I am a researcher. Um, yes, I was the the mission. What was I called? Mission research worker. I think was what they were calling me, uh, which was great. But that was a term that just wasn't defined. There were a lot of people in the churches that just didn't have a clue what that was going to mean. And actually, that's one of my regrets, you know, through through doing my fieldwork was that there were a lot of things that just weren't, they weren't particularly well defined, they weren't particularly well um, communicated, uh, which meant that there were different expectations. You know, for some people, they thought that I was the outsider who was going to come in and, and sort everything out. So they were very suspicious of me coming in as an outsider. Um, for others, they were looking at me going, oh, thank you. You might actually be able to give us hope in this horrible situation. And then I'm, you know, feeling like the, the life boy that they're they're trying to hold on to. Like, I'm not a life jacket. I'm sorry. I can't stop you from sinking. Right. Um, but my job my role going into it because i was a researcher and coming at it from a researcher's perspective meant that my first the first thing i was doing when i went in was listening mm. so i was going to work alongside them to walk the journey with them to be able to to hear to listen to observe um to experience to share their lives with them to be able to tap into what were their struggles, what were their pains, what were the, what were the things that they saw as being needed, um, you know, what was it that was needed to, to happen, um, but also to hear their despair. Um, you know, it's really easy to write people off in rural churches as being, you know, blind or somehow attached, so attached to the past that they can't look forward or, you know, any of those kinds of things. The people that I was meeting were the people that were just so exhausted that they couldn't see how to change. Mm -hmm. So they were doing the same thing that they had done time and time and time again, year on year on year, because they just didn't have the energy or the imagination to be able to look beyond that, to look forward to that. There were people who actually said to me, we need somebody with a vision. We need somebody who can actually, you know, be some sort of impetus to us to, to change because because we know we need to change, but we just don't know how. We don't know how to how to fix this. And I should perhaps point out that, you know, I'm operating in a UK context. So I'm operating in the United Kingdom, in Scotland. Both of my case study churches were, you know, churches that were in buildings that predated the Reformation, um, or they were on grounds that, that predated the Reformation. So It blows my mind, yeah. So we're talking about churches, um, churches that were 
on sacred sites or on, on holy sites that date back a thousand years. Yeah. Like the church building, the you know, standing church building, one of my church buildings has a Norman archway. Like it dates back to the Normans. Wow. <laughs> and I'm, oh, okay. So when we're, when we're talking about history, when I'm talking about the history of a place or the history of a church, I'm talking like 500 years of people being in that place. Um, yeah. So that's, that's a great thing and that's a terrible thing all at the same time. And I, that argument, so that's, I imagine just how much you're laughing in the back of your head, thinking about like the doors at my church when I'm like, they replaced the the original doors of the church that were put up in like 1943, like not actually that old. Um, but like, it's that, it's that knee jerk of like, but this is our history and, and so-and-so's grandfather helped build this church. But in your situation, it's not so-and-so's grandfather. It is going back like so far back into people's history that like, we would get tired of saying the greats, you know, like this is, it, it's so much more steeped in history, like to the point that like, it, it is actually historical in a way that like not a lot of stuff here in the U.S. is. It's um, within your country. Yeah, yeah, like the churches that I'm dealing with are are older than the United States has been constituted as a country, which is 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 bananas for I mean, like there are churches in the United States older than the United States, but yes. like not by a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I and so I wonder, um, like I'm hearing that that a lot of these people wanted you to come in as this um, this this leader with ideas. How much of um, how much of your youth was a part of of how they thought that you would fix things? Like, were they did they think that you were going to come in and save them because you were under the age of fifty, <laughs> or like how how much how did how much did that play into it? I guess. I mean, that's that's part of it, certainly. Um, you know, so there was that idea of this is somebody coming from a fresh perspective, you know, somebody who, somebody who's younger, um, somebody who's not a white male over the age of 50, mm. um, you know, things like that, that, yeah, those things, those things were part of it. Um, I think one of the, one of the great difficulties and one of the, certainly one of the challenges that's facing, um, facing the Church of Scotland which is, you know, the contextuality of, of my thesis and, and my research. One of the challenges that's facing the Church of Scotland is the age of the clergy. The vast majority of the clergy are white males over 50. The women that are training as readers or training as um, local ministers, or even the women who have been ordained as clergy and who are continuing to operate as clergy, a lot of them are in their 50s and 60s. Um, and so we're talking about a, a church that is facing a huge, huge, huge drop off in terms of the number of clergy. And they are not meeting the requirements when it comes to um, actually recruiting more clergy. So the actually my PhD supervisor um, published a paper, he delivered the Chalmers lectures, uh, which happened in, in Edinburgh, and then he published he published a book, um, naturally, as you would, and um, about kind of about the future of the Church of Scotland. 
just in general and he was highlighting a couple of different points and one of the things that he referenced was that you know we are probably going to lose 50 percent of the clergy within the next 15 years because they're going to retire or die wow a huge number of rural churches in scotland only have regular sunday services because of retired ministers who live in the area who circulate who take services who function as interim moderators or who who function as um pulpit supply and you know they travel around and there's some of the some of the retired ministers that lived in the borders where I was um, doing my field work who were almost busier in their retirement than they had been during their actual tenure because they were you know covering six or seven different churches and they just went in rotation and they kind of traveled around and they just they did a whole bunch of different churches and um, in the UK by and large across the board when we're talking about rural ministry rural ministry is not one minister one church um, rural ministry is one minister three churches four mm -hmm. churches um, within actually within the Methodist um, within the Methodist Church in in England there is at least one Methodist minister that I know of uh, who had 11 parishes holy cow so you know <sighs> the idea of multi-congregation ministry um, is something that is that's become the norm when we're mm. talking about rural ministry and what does that look like um, so yes there are there are a lot of those kinds of pieces that come into the puzzle where you know I look at them from from the the researcher's perspective and I go okay if you're going to have the expectation that a pastor is going to be responsible for three and four and five churches you're going to have to make some really hard decisions about what does that pastor prioritize because it is actually physically impossible for that minister to have a Sunday service at 11 a.m. in every single building. It is physically impossible for that minister to cover six villages or towns or whatever else in terms of pastoral care. To say, sure, this minister is now going to be able to manage pastoral care visits every week to 600 people. Not so much. It's just not going to happen. Mm -hmm. So priorities need to need to be discussed they need to be um, talked about one of the the things that i bumped into time and time and time again in terms of looking at my research was um, problems in communication mm. there were difficulties in communication between churches mm -hmm. you know, churches that shared the same minister that never took any time to be with each other as as churches or as congregations because why would they bother being together as churches or congregations? This is my patch. This is all I care about. I'm not going to look at anything else. But oh yeah, I expect the minister to be here on this day at this time. Mm -hmm. I don't care whether or not you've got your donkey walk for Easter Sunday happening at the same time. We have messy church. We want the minister here. Mm -hmm. 
Wow. <laughs> no wonder, no wonder pastors are burning out. They're burning out so fast, but they're also not saying, I cannot physically be in those places. If you want this to happen, we need to meet together. We need to be in the room together. Mm-hmm. By and large, most of the pastors that I encountered struggled with boundaries. Ooh, they struggled I believe that. With, they struggled with setting healthy boundaries. They struggled with communicating those boundaries. And the, you know, the people that they were then working with, the Kirk sessions, the boards, the elders, the whichever, you know, description of, of people you want to talk about, deacons and all the rest. Um, they were so focused on their own thing that they actually didn't see. They weren't in a position to be able to see the pressure. So, mm. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so the, I, I just wanted to say, I think this is very interesting. Um, I mean, what you're describing, Heather, is stuff that the United Methodist Church in the United States, you know, in, in lots of different parts of the United States, particularly the conference that I'm affiliated with, it, um, we have pastors who experience that too, and of pastors taking on two or three or four point charges, you know, in, in rural settings. Um, and, and are, are sort of, uh, expected then to do all of the things that, that you're describing. What some of the, a thought that I have is, um, and, and, and I'm not sure how I'd be interested to know if, if this is something that you think is really applicable in the UK as well. Uh, the sense I get being a, a young pastor and, and, knowing a lot of younger pastors as few that as 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 there are you know there aren't many in in our context either um the sense i get is that a lot of our training is is oriented around what i would call like exemplary figures and so in when joe and i would take um uh uh ministry classes at seminary the texts we would be reading are, are uh, texts by, um, uh, we have a guy named Adam Hamilton, <laughs> right? Like, like a text Ew. that, yeah, we don't really like him. Uh, a, a text about church growth written by a, a pastor who took a small church and made that church into a 4,000 person church uh, or, or uh, a text on, uh, church governance written by uh, um, a a career church governing consultant, <laughs> you know, who, right. who, uh, who who's who makes their money by uh, being hired by different conferences or districts or, or whatever to come in and consult. Um, and all, it's not that those texts are bad necessarily. But there, we we discover, you know, once once we're appointed to Joe and I are appointed, we're appointed to very similar context. Once we're appointed to really to rural or really working class small town contexts, we discover that a lot of those things that we're trained to do, and a lot of the things that um, a lot of the images we're sort of trained to have, right, as as 
you're you're this young pastor that's going to turn this church around. You need to start thinking like that. You need to start visualizing the world kind of in those ways. We discover that a lot of that isn't really true, I think. Um, and and I'm wondering, you know, you talk about tra- you, we thought we said at the very beginning that one of the things that you um, highlight from the first podcast that we had and that you think is true is about training is, is this under training um, that a lot of pastors have in rural settings. What, I guess the question I have is what would you say? So it's a two prong question. One is, is your context kind of plagued by some of that too? Like this idea of, of uh, um, uh, uh, resources that are just not, that are just not applicable to these contexts, these rural contexts. And two, are there resources and what kinds of resources um, and types of training do pastors really need uh, if they're really called or even just appointed to these rural contexts? Good questions. Really good questions. Um, And actually, uh, first question, yes. Yes, uh, the UK is plagued by, um, by poor training, particularly when it comes to training for rural, but actually um, training when it comes to ministry in the 21st century, um, just in general. Uh, so one of, the, uh, one of the problems, and it's a problem that's been highlighted uh, in a few conversations that I've had with different people, is that the, the question of the exemplary um, people are being trained, one minister, one parish. That is not the case. Um, even if you've got somebody who's moving into a rural parish, or into an urban parish, pardon me, um, even if they're moving into an urban parish, chances are pretty good they are going to have some sort of responsibility for a neighbouring a neighboring church, um, be it that they might have a responsibility as an interim moderator. Um, they may have a responsibility as, um, actually, are you familiar with the term interim moderator? Uh, I'm probably not. Please, okay. please, please explain that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I, I suddenly realized there are some of these terms that I'm going to throw about that just might not be familiar. I, I'm also in a PhD program, so I've trained myself to go, mm-hmm, yeah, sure. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> um, and when you grow up in churches, you do the exact same thing. You don't want to not be part of the club. So you go, sure. Yep. Totally get it. Um, so an interim moderator, basically, um, they're a minister who is assigned to a congregation when a congregation is in vacancy. So they provide advice through the process of trying to, to find a minister, um, the process of, uh, of just being without a minister for however long that transition period happens to be. Um, so they they can provide advice to uh, to the local elders, the local deacons, uh, whoever they are. So if you've got a minister who is um, responsible for their own parish and holding all of the, the threads together for a church going through the process of finding a new minister, because that's the way that the Presbyterian church runs, um, churches have a responsibility to choose their own minister. They have that they have that right. That's part of part of the reason why the Church of Scotland is the way that the Church of Scotland is. That's a considered to be a fundamental right. 
um, it's one of the things that the church split over was ministers being appointed by local landowners versus ministers that were being appointed by the local people. Um, not that you need all of that church history, but I can give that to you later. Um, and so, you know, if you've got somebody who's who's in a responsibility like that, um, you know, that's that's an additional element. So they have to deal with all of the political, all of the you know um, paperwork that's involved with that, all of the man hours that are involved with that, and obviously trying to pastor their own their own parish. And so there are a lot of those really practical things that ministers discover as soon as they leave the university or the, or the seminary setting, that they just have no experience. Um, they don't have the experience, they don't have the mentoring for that. And from my perspective, again, my, my bag or one of my, one of my bags is about discipleship and saying, you know, you have to have a structure of discipleship and accountability. And what I would love to see I would love to see it implemented here in Scotland. I'd love to see it implemented sort of, you know, worldwide, denomination-wide, is a process of almost apprenticeship. Um, so pairing people up, um, people that have gone through training, whatever age they are, because here in the UK, at least, we've got quite a lot of people who are training for ministry as a second career. And um, so they're in their 50s when they're, you know, when they're going through training to become a minister in their 40s and 50s but again they have life experience so they can deal with you know how do you get a board to to come on board with you pun intended there um and uh, so they have that life experience but they don't actually have the experience of how do i manage to provide pastoral care for a family that is grieving because of a um, a funeral by suicide at the same time as trying to deal with the, um, the financial situation that this church is facing at the same time as trying to counsel a couple that are trying to get married at the same time as trying to be you know present for the Remembrance Day ceremonies that are coming up and the same time that I'm trying to do you know all of those things in some of the in some of the training uh, within the Church of Scotland at least, there is a probation year. So people go into their probation. In their probation, they have somebody who is you know, kind of almost pastoring them through that process. But I would love to see that take on a much more intentional perspective to be able to go with it. And um, so that's that's the one side of things. I've got many, I've got so many thoughts. They're all going to come out very spaghetti-like they're all intertwined. Um, when it comes to, to resources, one of the things that I've been very intentional about doing, and part of this is because I'm doing a PhD, what do you expect, um, is looking at uh, books, looking at books and articles that actually address some of the challenges that are facing rural churches, both practically and, um, and you know, theoretically. One of the things that you highlighted was about the the idea of you know take this church of a hundred and try to make it a church of five thousand. Um, I actually think that's problematic. I think that man I think that mentality is hugely problematic, because what it does is it actually places, um, it places a level of expectation 
on ministers that is unrealistic and incredibly damaging. Um, because if something happens and your church isn't growing numerically, you're a failure. But when you look at the context, you go, well, how can my church grow numerically? There are only a hundred houses in this town. Exactly. So, yeah. You know, this is this I'm I'm in a small place. Um, one of the things that I have become uh, much more, much more convinced of is the importance of contextual theology. Um, you know, the priority of context. Uh, now, again, I have a biblical studies background. Um, I have a biblical studies background. And because I have a biblical studies background, then language, context, translation, interpretation, mm -hmm. all of these things become so important. You know, if I'm going to talk about, um, if I'm going to talk about how I'm going to translate a particular passage of Hebrew, then I'm going to say, well, I need to know what the cultural context is. I need to know what the what the literary context is, but I also need to be aware of where is it being received. So what's the reception history? Um, I think the same thing applies in churches. And I think there are there are churches that are small churches because they are called to be small churches, because they are small churches. That is their that is their identity. Um, and actually, they can do that very, very well. They can be small intentionally very, very well. There is an element of you know, growth will happen as people are mobilized to be engaging in ministry and in mission in their local area. It's a natural, kind of a natural continuation, if you like, from people who are beginning to tell their neighbors about church. <laughs> They're like, oh yeah, this thing that's happening at church. And before you know it, people are like, wait, what's happening at church? And they want to come along because they want to figure out what's going on. <laughs> like there's some, there's something strange going on in the church building. I'd like to at least figure out what this is because there's something happening and I'm not part of it, but I want to be part of it. This is rural places. This is what happens. Mm -hmm. But I think there's a place for, there is a place for giving people permission to be little, mm -hmm. to be okay with being little. There are some books that I've picked up over the years, and I'll see if I can find a couple of them. Um, you know, there are a couple of them, and I'll I'll put together a list, and then you can you can have the list. Um, but there's one that is actually you know American in context as well as being uh, in publication called uh, Effective Small Churches in the 21st Century by Carl Dudley. Um, so, so that's one that actually talks a bit about congregational story and congregational history and, and all of that. Uh, there's another one, and that one's obviously listed as being 21st century, so it's not 100 years old. Um, <laughs> but I've also got one that was you know, first published in the 90s, Celebrating the Small Church by Martin Robinson and Danny Arnell. Um, one of the others that I picked up quite recently and I haven't, I haven't fully gotten into it yet, so I don't know where it's gonna go, um, is A Big Gospel in Small Places, Why Ministry in Forgotten Community Matters. And it's by Stephen Whitmore or Whitmer. So those are, you know, those are a couple of the ones that are there. 
But one of the things that has been really influential in terms of my research uh, is a book by uh, James F. Hopewell called Congregation, Stories and Structures. One of the things that, um, that Hopewell talks about is the importance of tapping into the narrative story of the church. How does the church define their own identity? Um, if you can tap into what the narrative of the church is and be consistent with what the narrative of the church is, you can then effect change once you're, once you're tapped into that. Um, but trying to force a church into fitting a model is never going to work. You're going to beat your head against a brick wall and you're going to burn out and you're going to die, basically, um, because you're just going to bash in against that all the time. Um, <laughs> there are a couple of other books that I find really, really useful. Um, again, in terms of my own thinking about rural ministry and, and about people going into rural ministry. Um, and one of them is, and I've mentioned this one to you before, Joan, um, Preaching as Local Theology and Folk Art uh, by Leonora Tubbs Tisdale. And one of the chapters in it um, was great. Uh, actually, I'll just read the chapter titles because they're great. The first chapter title, The Culture Shock of Preaching. Mm. It goes from an urban congregation to a rural place. And so it's partly her like, what is this? What have I walked into? So the culture shock of preaching, uh, aiming towards contextual preaching is the second chapter. The third chapter is the one that I found fascinating and it's exegeting the congregation. Um, so that it's this process of listening, of observing, of tapping into um tapping into how do I communicate well in the local context and then preaching as local theology and preaching as folk art uh, are the other chapter titles there but I just found that really really useful really interesting in terms of my own thinking and um, there are some other I mean there are other resources specifically to do with rural um, that are more UK context but they translate um, so there are there are places that you can you can pull from them. One of the ones that has been fascinating um, is a really really recent book. Uh, it's the follow up. There are two books um, by this author. It's Steve Aisthorpe, and um, he wrote uh, a book called The Invisible Church, um, which is in. So the Invisible Church was published in two thousand and sixteen. It's about churchless Christians. Yes. So um, basically, what he was doing was tapping into uh, doing quite a lot of research in Scotland about um, Christians who are not associated with a church for one reason or another, either because they've been hurt by churches. Um, or because the church itself just isn't meeting their, um, it just isn't meeting their needs, or in some cases, because there's such a disconnect between what they understand Christianity to be and how the church is embodying that, which I know, at least Joe, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you absolutely, <laughs> this, this, this will speak to your heart, I think, on a lot of levels, um, because there is that, that, you know, disconnect between the experience. But this year, um, 
no, last year. We're in a new year. Okay, in 2020, um, he published, in the middle of 2020, he published a book called Rewilding the Church. Ooh. Um, now, Rewilding the Church um, is, he's tapping into the, the ecological metaphor of rewilding, um, letting nature, you know, kind of break free from managed control and working with it to say, okay, what, what if we put less faith in our structures and plans and allowed the spirit to lead us um, and, and tapping into some of that and saying, okay, well, we, you know, we, we operate in quite a lot of structure, but what happens if we, what happens if we push that? What happens if we say, let's strip away all of the structures, all of the things that we've attached to and just say, okay, God, where are you? Um, you know, how are you operating in this place? Although he didn't write it with rural in mind, when I started reading it, I started going, this is so applicable for rural. Because rural churches don't fit the city mould. They don't fit the urban mould that is what so many ministers have been trained for. Um, you know, there are ministers that I know, because I have encountered them, um, who have decided that in the later years of their ministry, they're going to move to a rural place because that's where they can have a nice, quiet life as a minister. And I look at them and think, you have no idea. None at all. None. A ministry in a rural place does not mean that you get to spend four days a week golfing. Ministry in a rural place means that every aspect of your life will be part of your ministry. Mm -hmm. um, because rural places you're always you're always a witness um, you know if you're going to talk about if you're going to talk about rural ministry you're going to talk about incarnational you know what does it mean to be incarnational to, to live and breathe and say you know what I am here because I am called to be a Christian and being a Christian means that I'm involved in mission and ministry and the way that I interact with my neighbour in the local shop needs to match up with the way that I'm going to preach on Sunday morning. If I do not live a life that is a witness to justice or a witness to um, care, a witness to, to love, to truth, to all of those things, if I'm not willing to live that Monday through Saturday, then I do not have the right to preach that on Sunday morning. Now, you'd think this would be basic. Um, you'd think this should be basic. But I'll be honest, one of the things that I found so heartbreaking when I started doing my, doing my research was meeting people who had an incredible attitude about the church and had an incredible attitude about, um, about ministry and ministers in general because the minister wouldn't talk to them when they passed them on the street. Ooh. Hmm. They didn't, you know, this particular minister, uh, one particular minister was described as being an odd fish because they didn't make eye contact. They didn't speak when they passed somebody. Hmm. And you just think, wow. Okay. Um, right. I think yeah. Go back to 101 you know if we're going to talk about rural rural ministry then you need to talk about 
what does it mean to live as a disciple of Christ? Mm -hmm. In this setting. Yeah, exactly, in this setting. Um, One of the things that I found fascinating uh, in doing my fieldwork was the number of people who would say, so are, are you are you going to be are you going to be an, a minister <laughs> now you're doing a phd you're going to become a minister and sitting there and looking at them going i have no intention of becoming an ordained minister i am called to mission and ministry every day because i am a christian i will operate in that function because i'm a christian and, yeah you know my my role and my calling, the way that I see my role and calling is as somebody who accompanies people through their journeys, who, who walks alongside, who provides training, who provides, you know, that sounding board if necessary. Um, but that is my calling rather than being the, I'm going to prepare two sermons a week and manage the, you know, manage the, the ins and outs of, have we got prayer meetings sorted? Have we made sure that we've got the music and the um, the music sorted and, and all of those kinds of things? Which, again, that's not all that a pastor's called to either. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's really easy for people to say, oh, well, that's all the pastor does. No, no, pastor does so much more than that. Um, but yeah, this has been, this is, this is part of the, part of the tension, part of the struggle when it comes to talking about about uh, about rural and about rural ministry and rural issues anyway um so uh, what i kind of took away what i what i glommed onto as you were talking is that um that idea of knowing the congregational story and uh it's that combination of allowing churches to be small and also knowing the church's story and being able to kind of pull out of that and have a a sustainable, vibrant ministry that does not look like a mega church or does not look like growing and growing and growing um, exponentially, because it's just not possible. Um, is that is that what you think the future of rural ministry is? Is learning to think small and and focusing on their identity over growth? Um, yes and no. So. I think there is, I think there is a place for, um, there's a place for taking the time to invest in the context to say, who are we? Where are we? What are we called to do here um, in this place? So yes, that's absolutely important. Um, I think another key element for, you know, for the future of, of rural churches, the future of rural ministry, uh, has to do with um, training and equipping and discipling local people to be actively engaged in mission and ministry in their own local contexts. Um, I know that's something you touched on a bit in the in the previous podcast um, about the the importance of local in rural areas. You know, the insider. Who are the insiders here? Um, so there's part of it that has to do with enabling teams and facilitating teams, that's part of what enables sustainability. Um, So if you're going to talk about sustainability, then you need to talk about saying, how do we equip people and teach them that they have a responsibility to be missionaries in their local context? Um, When it comes to just church size and, and church numbers, kind of just in general, 
uh, one of the ministers that I was uh, kind of privileged to, to sit under, again, in a more rural place or in a, in a smaller town, um, talked about the... Um, talked about the importance of recognizing the limitations of ministry, the limitations for a single person trying to maintain an element of ministry, and basically said that, you know, up to 100 people is manageable. When you start tipping between 100 and 150 people, you need to start talking about church plants. You need to start talking about planting um, planting in, in a neighbouring place. But a church plant needs to be a case of saying, we are going to be intentional about this. And a church plant is like six families that go together. Not, here we go, we are going to send three people out to start a church plant away off and wherever. No, no, no. You need to send a portion of your congregation to that church plant so that there can be um, there can be some sort of network, there can be some sort of community already functioning in that. People don't like that. People don't like to leave, people don't like to move. Um, but one of the things that that does, that that enables, is a church to continue to be a family. Uh, one of my frustrations when I was involved in, in the megachurch side of things was the separation of, gen of generations. I was so angry. <laughs> I was so angry at the fact that, you know, you had teenagers who never, ever, within the way that the church was set up, they never had an opportunity to actually be together with people that were in their 70s and 80s. And I thought that was so damaging and so dangerous because it meant that your teenagers never got the benefit of building secure, you know, healthy relationships with men and women who could tell them this is what it means to be, you know, a man or a woman because of my life experience. And these are the struggles you're going to go through. And how can I walk with you through these struggles? They never had the opportunity to do that because as soon as they walked into the church, the young people go off there and, the, you know, these people go off there and these people go off there. And I thought, why? Please don't do this. Um, you know, that's one of the benefits of small. Small allows you to have intergenerational. But intergenerational requires intentionality. Um, so during my field work, I encountered people in the church who talked about the importance of young people. And they said, yes, we need to have young people involved in church. Went, that's great. Do you know any? Have you spoken to any? No? Okay. So I'm going to set you a challenge, you know. <laughs> How about you talk to your own children and your own grandchildren? Because we're talking about churches, in the UK particularly, churches are by and large aging in terms of congregational structure. So you have a demographic where churches I walked into these churches, both of both of my case study churches, and I was the youngest person by about 30 years. Um, and you go, oh, good. But I looked at them and I said, you're complaining about the fact you're missing a generation. And I'm going to tell you right now, you are missing two and maybe three. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You are missing three generations 
Why is that? Well, part of the reason why you're missing three generations is because somewhere along the line, you and the church and your family disconnected. Mm -hmm. There's something that's gone a little bit skew-if here, and that's not down to the minister. Because the minister has Sunday. <laughs> There's a responsibility within families. How do we keep going with this? Now, in rural areas, you also have the problem of people moving to cities for, for education. They move to cities for jobs. They move to, to cities for all of those kinds of reasons. So you've got a migration that happens. But even in those places where families have stayed local, suddenly you have sports that happen on a Sunday. You've got, um, you know, organized activities saturdays have become sports days or shopping days or the day that you get everything done so sunday is a family day well family day well we're not going to bother going to church why because church is no longer part of the the narrative that we that we say we operate with within our town or within our village it's not a priority um, but all of those kinds of things come into play where you start saying well, you can't expect a minister to start a youth program that is going to be incorporated within the church if you as a congregation are unwilling to build relationships with those young people as they're coming into the church. They're never going to be able to make that transition. Um, but also one of the challenges, at least in the UK, and I remember seeing it in Canada as well, was... Um, a lot of kids get lost around about the time that they, you know, start into, oh, wait, what is it with you? Probably around the time that they would finish, like, middle school. Like, 13-ish? Yeah, 12, 13, about age 12, 13. That's when they start to disconnect. They lose, they lose the structure because that's when a lot of Sunday school stops. Mm -hmm. um, so Sunday school is designed for younger kids, by and large. And they never, they never make the transition. So, so all of those kinds of things that come into play, there's huge potential in small churches and in rural areas because family is part of just how you live. <laughs> but there is also a huge burden when you're when you're talking about churches and and in local families. There we are. That's a slight aside. But it's an important one, I think. Um, this is there's so many threads to pull at here, so I don't want to I don't want to start us on another conversation. Um, but any kind of last thoughts, Ethan? Any questions from you? Anything to to wrap us up with today? This has been really cool. Um, mm -hmm. And and Heather, I, I'll say this: like a lot of the insights that you are um, kind of giving us, and then a lot of the the things that you wish. Um, more churches would do are things that I think uh, Joe and I have discovered in our context as being mm -hmm. pastors in rural settings, you know, the particularly the call to more intergenerational uh, worship and intergenerational churches. That's something that I think is, is really, um, is really evident. Uh, one time uh, the, my conference sent me um, on a, uh, a church growth uh, trip to Orlando, Florida called Exponential. It's just this. like a mega church evangelical uh, church growth thing. 
and uh, Joe has heard this story, but you you will laugh at this story. And I was in a breakout session uh, with my friend uh, who's an ordained elder. Her name is Mindy. And um, the and the guy who's running the breakout session came up to us first and and shook Mindy's hand and said, "Is this your husband?" And Mindy's like, "No, I'm an ordained elder. I have my own church." And the guy was like, "Oh." And then he kind of turned to me and because he didn't have anything to say to the to the lady pastor and <laughs> yeah. said and said, are you the senior pastor of your church, sir? And I'm like, I guess, you know, I'm the only pastor. <laughs> so I suppose I'm the senior pastor. And he said, uh, did you know that God wants three wants your church to have three thousand people every day on a Sunday that, that God wants that for you? And I'm like, well, I serve a, a town of about three thousand people. And half of them are Catholic. And so I really don't know if that's going to happen. And uh, he didn't have anything to say to that either. And he, and he left us alone for the rest of the time. But I, I think that uh, the, your, your call to smallness um, and for churches to be uh, good with smallness and happy with smallness and, and to recognize that that can be a very healthy thing. Smallness doesn't mean death. It just means smallness is something that'll stick with me. And I hope that the listeners will hear well. That's my wrap up <laughs> for me. I think that's good. Heather, any, any last words? Uh, well, actually I've just noticed your note about the thing that you wanted to talk about, about the intersection between rural church and, and class systems. And I'm just going to make a really quick, um, a really quick comment about Scotland and the way that Scotland is, is um, set up and, and how I experienced it was that um, in the parish church, at any rate, by and large, the people who were in church on a Sunday morning, who were part of the regular standard service, um, were people from upper middle class uh, backgrounds. They were the ones who had associations with um, being more educated, being business owners, um, um, farm owners, uh, and again, rural, Rural here, defining rural is just, it's a whole different mess. Um, but, you know, the people who were landowners or the people who, who operated in that kind of context, by and large, they were more likely to be involved with the parish church. Um, but the, the messy church, uh, messy church outreach for, for young families, that by and large um, brought in a different level. So that was the, the more lower lower class um, subsidized housing people who were uh, were operating the lower working class type of type of people and so there are demographic issues that that change there um, i mean one of the other things that is an influence in scotland is that you've got divides between uh, english and scottish and in the borders that becomes really really tense um, so, you know, don't have too much English influence in your church or you're going to chase away all the people who are Scottish nationalists and that's going to be a mess. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of those kinds of things, the, the underlying tensions within a local community are often reflected in churches. Um, and there are people hmm. who would never darken the door of the parish church because their association with it or their perspective on the church is that that's the church that's for the people that come from money or the people that come from the, the more kind of upper class background. Whereas uh, one of the independent evangelical churches that was in the local area had a reputation for being more 
um, more inclusive of people who were coming from a diverse background in socioeconomic, in terms of socioeconomic um, background and, and situation there. So my experience within a UK context to do with class systems and, and class distinction is, is quite different. Um, but that is something that I think any pastor who's going into a rural area, they must be prepared for, um, they must be prepared for the social history uh, and the social relationships. Um, because at the end of the day, rural is all about relationship. Um, it's about relationship. It's about listening. It's about um, doing life together. You know, that's my favorite definition of discipleship is doing life together. And I think it's so important when it's talking about being a rural pastor, being being you know, involved in rural ministry, you have to be prepared to share your life and to share in the lives of other people, um, whatever that might look like. And it's going to differ from context to context and from personality to personality. And, um, you know, be prepared. If you're going to go into rural ministry, be prepared. It's going to be hard. Um, it's going to need huge amounts of prayer. It's going to need huge amounts of support. And if you're going into a rural pastoring, um, into a rural pastorate, have people that you can talk to really honestly who are not part of the community. Mm -hmm, have mm -hmm. people that you can just go at who, who are not involved um, because you need to have that sounding board. When you're in a rural place, it can become very, very easy to be overwhelmed by the local, by the rural issues and become mired in them to the point where you can no longer see clearly. Um, when I left the, when I left my local context and left after 27 months of fieldwork, I had been so deeply invested in the local lives of people because I needed to understand how they thought, how they felt, what their experiences were, that I came out of that and for a good six months afterwards, I was struggling. I was really struggling to have to try and figure out how to articulate my experience and talking with my supervisor and going, I, I can't even begin to sort through my notes to try and figure out how do I reflect on this well to be able to write this up in something that's going to be even remotely coherent as a, as a thesis. Um, and I think that's, that's something that people who are going to go into rural need to be prepared for. Um, take, take the time to reflect, take the time to pray, take the time to talk, talk it out with other people. Um, those things become really, really important. And I guess the, the final note, unless you've got anything you want to say, Joe. Nope. Uh, the final note that I would say is that I believe that there is a future for rural churches. Um, but that a future for rural churches, a sustainable future for rural mission and ministry, rather than necessarily for churches as institutions, um, is going to require change because it requires letting go of things that are no longer healthy or helpful. And it requires embracing the possibilities of what could be. And that is hard. It's it's not something that uh, is necessarily going to be quick and it's definitely not something that's going to be easy. Um, but I, 
I thorough, I'm thoroughly convinced <laughs> that God has a plan and a purpose for rural. And I think that there are things that we can learn um, as just as, as people. Um, but specifically, I think denominations need to learn from rural. They need to learn from the importance of people. They need to learn from the importance of relationship and they need to learn from the importance of context. Mm-hmm. Um, so there you go. There's my, my, my final thoughts. That's a good last thought. Uh, Ethan, you want to send us off? Yes. This has been an episode of What the Hell is a Pastor? We are Ethan and Joe and Heather, and we will see you next time.